Today's episode of the Mets Up Podcast is sponsored by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. First off, that's huge. And that's what we use here on the Mets Up Podcast. I highly suggest it. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your own phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other streaming services. And you're allowed to make money from your podcast from day one with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So make sure you guys download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Back here for episode number 69. Nice. nice. Of course, we gotta give a shout out to 69, the greatest number there's ever been. 69th episode of the Metzdom Podcast. We made it. Uh, we don't have a lot to talk about this episode, honestly. There's really nothing. The biggest news is that Joey Cora has been announced as the new third base coach for the Mets, and our opinion is that he can't be worse than D Sarcina, right? No. Yeah. Uh, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna talk about the Mets, most Mets history. Most Mets moments, we're going to talk about some just crazy things that you can't even believe happened with, to, about the New York Mets. And we've got quite the list here. Me and James probably got about you know three or four things each that we want to talk about because the list is truly shocking. We're going to take in number 69. It's a fun episode. Have fun with this one. And again, kind of as we do with the all-time Mets team, you know, the most Mets team of all time, we're going to put it in the past. After we talk about these moments... We don't want to hear about them again because that's the old Mets. We got the new Mets now. We got money. There's a few we might still hear about. There's some funny things that have happened that weren't really about the Mets chaos, but more so. Actually, no, they actually were about Mets chaos. We'll we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. But anyway, you know, we got to do the spiel for the intro. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at Mets Up. It's 2022. Also, Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. This is the only episode we can Happy New Year. Yeah. Anything else is too far. Today, January 4th, you have three more days to Happy New Year. Anybody else you want. Once January 7th comes... Happy New Year's are reserved for 2023. But anyway, my 2022 New Year's resolution was going to be, the content's going to be killer now because I've been slacking with the video side. James kills it with the audio. I'm going to teach him how to edit some TikToks too. Yeah. We're going to be all over the place. So follow us, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, at Up, YouTube channel, Up Podcast. If you're listening to us, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Spotify now has ratings and reviews. No, so, just ratings, no reviews. That's what it is. Okay, drop us a rating. Five stars on both of them. Really does help grow the podcast. And... I think that's the spiel. And one more thing. We have some homework for our listeners, the Messed Up listeners. Next week, while there's still not that much to talk about, we're going to commit the episode to a review of the 30 for 30 about the 1986 Mets Once Upon a Time in Queens on ESPN. I think still available on ESPN Plus or most on-demands, depending on the cable packages you guys have. So that's homework. Everybody watch it if you haven't yet. Mark and I, neither of us have completed it because we were saving it for the podcast. So watch that next week. That's what we're going to be doing for the episode. Yeah, and it's going to be our little review, little you know notes and all the craziness that goes on in that as well. And then hopefully maybe we'll have baseball after that's done. We don't know. It's not looking great, but that's our plan moving forward right now. We're still going to be here every week talking Mets baseball and anything that goes along. So let's go ahead and just get started about it. The Mets have had one of the most interesting histories in all of Major League Baseball, despite being not one of the original teams. And... Even not being original team, still being, again, relatively new. The Mets came into existence in 1962, along with, I believe, the Padres? Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. And as an expansion team who came into a city that had just lost two baseball teams, they immediately had a lot of people who were very concerned about them. They immediately had a lot of money behind them to possibly do things right, 
still fuck some things up and then eventually get some things right kind of accidentally. Yeah, I mean, we have some great moments. The fact that we got Tom Seaver was an absolute gift from God. The fact that he just fell into the New York Mets lap. He wasn't even drafted. He was just signed. He was drafted by the Dodgers, and I think he said no, and then eventually he came along to the Mets as the, from the graces of God. Yeah, and literally one of the best pitchers of all time and by far the best player the Mets have ever had in their organization. That was awesome. And then it kind of, kind of ends there a little bit because you had the, you know, amazing Mets in 1969 doing that crazy stuff because they were so incredibly horrible every single year before that. And then there was a little bit of a calm. You know, we made some appearances here and there, but really I feel like the Mets history that everyone talks about and really kind of has these glory days of starts in 1986 and that's where all the crazy stories really begin. Absolutely. And the first story that Mark and I want to share with you guys today is about something that happened in between the NLCS and World Series from the 1986 team. A lot of people don't ever consider the fact that the Mets played a hard-fought tooth-and-nail series against the Astros, who had a better regular season record than them. Home field advantage in that series. A very good baseball team. Like, I mean, on the pitching side, Nolan Ryan, Mike Scott, former Met, who was so god-awful with the Mets, and then he went to the Astros, and how funny is this? Mike Scott, the Mets were accusing him of cheating. Another Astro on the cheating block there is, uh, is just worth noting. But yeah, he was scuffing baseballs. So he became sick. They had J.R. Richard, who you could make an argument, was better at Nolan, than Nolan Ryan at times. Like This team was absolutely loaded on the pitching side. I don't think J.R. Richard was on the 1986 team. Oh, okay. He was he was there during the 80s, though, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, Mike Scott that year in 1986 was 18-10 and 10 with a 2-2 ERA in 37 games started. Yeah, I think he was the Cy Young. Wow, that's astounding. Yeah, he was he was absolutely disgusting, or Cy Young candidate, I should say. He was unbelievable. The team was great, and the Mets went in there, and we, we stole the series for them. But that's not even the craziest story. Everything that happens kind of around it is where it really goes nuts. Not even close to the craziest story. And I wanted to just shout out my dad because I grabbed um, the book from Jeff Perlman from back in the mid-2000s, The Bad Guys Won, about the 1986 Mets, and I... Stole an anecdote from that book and embellished on some things myself about the flight that the Mets took after they clinched the pennant from Houston back to New York. The game before that was a 16-inning just absolute hobnocker in the Astrodome. The game started at 3 p.m. Imagine NLCS game 6 at 3 p.m. also, by the way. How much fun that could be. But Fun uh, and also a horrible job yeah, by MLB. <laughs> yeah, awful. An 8-6 to six brutal win by the Mets. Back and forth game where some crazy things happened. Again, that's not what we're talking about right now. That came after a game 5 in Queens that the Mets won in 12 innings. So the Mets just played 28 innings in three days to win two games from their bitter rivals and at the time the best team in the National League to finally get the monkeys off their back and reach the World Series, a team that was perpetual underachievers who knew they were the most talented in baseball. And they finally had, again, climbed that mountaintop and did something incredible, which was win a pennant. Yeah, they went into Houston and I don't want to say stomped on their throats because it was, it was a close series. No, they won 4-2 so with two extra inning games at the end. I think most of the games were like one or two runs. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a really, really clean baseball series, but the Mets slugged one out, like you said, and they were feeling pretty good. Yeah, definitely. And as everybody knows about the 1986 Mets, the team was just riddled with psychopaths. Just an absolute batch of nut jobs left and right. Guys like Lenny Dykstra, Doc Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, Wally Backman. Ray Knight. Ray Knight was a crazy fuck. Tim Tuffle. Kevin Mitchell. I said Daryl Strawberry, right? You didn't say Daryl. Daryl. Daryl Strawberry. Doc. Yeah, I said him. Crazy son of a bitches. And again, this is a nice little teaser for next week when we go through Once Upon a Time in Queens. But there was a ton of emotion in that series from a lot of guys who had been told that they weren't good enough or they weren't ready for a very long time, especially a guy like Davey Johnson, who was like the pinnacle of players' managers. Just a lot of emotion came out in this series. The backup catcher, Ed Hearn, said, I could have slept for 20 hours and I didn't even play in either game. (laughs) 
That's how intense these two games were to get to the pennant. Just even imagine modern baseball. This kind of reminds me of actually that uh, Red Sox-Dodgers game from a few years back. Yeah. That game ended, and you saw guys just like, oh. And the series was over after that. The Red Sox won the World Series Nathan Evaldi, yes. even though they lost, literally won them because of his ability to just throw seven innings in relief. Absolutely. So the game ends, and naturally the Mets go back to the clubhouse and start boozing. But since the game went for five hours, it kind of disrupted the schedule between a clubhouse party and a bus to the charter plane that was waiting for them to take him back to New York for a celebration. Not a celebration, but like for some good feelings that would ensue. So the Mets kind of had an unsatisfying partying experience in the clubhouse, something that you would think about after you clinch a pen. Usually you hang out there for a while. So they were basically rushed out of the clubhouse by the traveling secretary and said, you guys have to get to the plane because if we don't, it's going to just leave without you. So people were still looking to drink some more and they were drinking on the bus on their way to the airport. And Getting to the airport was also a little bit interesting in this situation because for this series alone, the Mets players, especially Ray Knight and Ron Darling, who were kind of the Mets team ambassadors to the front office, lobbied very hard to get their wives and girlfriends on these flights to and from Houston because it's been a long season. They didn't get to spend that much time with their spouses. And Frank Cashin was the Mets general manager at the time, and he was old school to say the least and possibly a little bit objectively sexist. And this is something he had never allowed before. And he has some horrific quotes about women, like during his tenure as a general manager. And I won't really indulge into all of them, but basically one of them, he was a longtime general manager of Frank Robinson. He had said, if Frank Robinson never missed a day for the birth of his child or any problems with his wife, you don't have to either. <laughs> so there, there was a zero tolerance policy for any kind of domestic dispute with the Mets. And this was a hill that he had basically died on before of not letting wives and girlfriends travel with the team. You don't need those kind of distractions, especially the team on top of the World Series. But with the players lobbying, Cash and begrudgingly agreed, even though there were some issues going on with a lot of these players in the Mets and their spouses, namely Daryl Strawberry, who had a domestic dispute during this Astros series. So there was already going to be some tension, some craziness on this plane. And another factor there, which is like some real minutia, is that they had to basically change planes because you're almost doubling the amount of people on this plane. The Mets usually had flown DC-9 planes with a small airline called Ozark, who did charter planes for a lot of other professional teams. So now they need to get a bigger plane, DC-10, and they had to contract United for this. So with that, they were kind of trying to usher in some new relationships. United was actually very excited to get the Mets because they wanted to become the official airline of the New York Mets. Little did they know what was about to happen on this flight. And Ozark actually had some issues with the Mets that season. On a very short one-hour flight from Chicago to St. Louis, Jesse Orozco and uh, Doug Sisk just started throwing dinner rolls all over the plane at flight attendants, causing a ruckus. The pilot had to be like, everyone, please stop what you're doing. And they booed him, booed him, <laughs> and told him he sucked. I think I told him to fuck off, too, Jeff Perlman said in this book. So, And also, again, 70s, 80s, athletes, planes. There's going to be the general sexual assault that happened a lot back then that was just absolutely inexcusable. And that was a one-hour flight. That one where Jesse Orozco and Doug Sis started throwing dinner rolls. This was Houston to New York. You're going halfway across the country. You're three five, and a half, five hours at least. Yeah. I, I don't know how quick the planes were in the 80s. It's true. They could be slower. A DC-10. You're, you're, you're lugging a lot of weight there. So the Mets and their wives now get off the bus. Champagne and beer is flowing. The plane is all stacked up ready to go with more champagne and beer. And debauchery just instantly ensues. The Mets apparently have been roughhousers on these planes in general with the back of the plane crew. That was Sisk, Orozco, and Danny Heap. Those guys were known as the Scum Bunch. Which is an incredible nickname. It's a wild name to call a trio of men. And this started getting crazy. The Mets just won the pennant. A lot of emotion over the last couple of days. Drinks were flowing. Michael Rufino, who was the bat boy at the time, said it was the loudest flight I've ever been on. It was sheer craziness. Could you imagine how cool that would be to be the bat boy of the 86 Mets? 
I, imagine being like, how old do you think he was? Like 19? 20? I don't, I don't even know if he was that old. I think he was younger. He was on this plane. He was like 13. He could have been like 15, 16. I like think, I think he had to be 18, probably, yeah. to be traveling with a team. Maybe for traveling. School? Yeah. But because remember... Missing elementary school? I mean, this will kind of, I guess, build into another story. But remember the, the old, the time traveler for Vargas? With, with yeah. the Vargas thing? Yeah. He was the bat boy during the Hank Aaron times. Wow. And he said he was a kid. So, like, <laughs> there's a chance that this guy was under the age of 18. It is possible. He might have been under the age of 18. Imagine being 18 and being on the flight. That'd be incredible. I'd be scared for your life. But we're going to get into those details later on because you guys don't really know what's going to happen yet. So things got crazy. Now with another quote from Wally Backman. It was the one time when everybody, and I mean everybody, was drinking. It was all out partying. And this is from Wally Backman, one of the craziest men who's ever been in baseball, but probably not even the top five crazy guy on this team. No. Just to go how crazy it was. So then, again, United was trying to make a good impression with the Mets. They wanted to become the exclusive flight partner of the New York Mets, fly them everywhere. Such a good team that was well-liked by many fans, very popular at least. But when everyone was really drunk, they made the massive mistake of bringing out a gigantic cake. Like, iridescent of, like, a birthday party. They said, like, congratulations to the Mets, 1986 pennant. And, of course, the first thing that happened was somebody stuck their hand in the cake and just created a massive food fight. They were taking handfuls of this cake, slices that United gave out nice slices of cake because they were trying <laughs> to be nice, and they were whooping these things all over the plane. Walls, ceiling, in each other's faces, the flight attendants, literally everywhere. Kevin Mitchell said... I couldn't believe the things I saw going on because once this cake came out and it created this air of debauchery, everything just apparently went just sky high craziness after that. And this also coincided with a time when the beer and champagne ran out on this plane and the flight attendants brought out the little bottles of hard liquor. (laughs) That's a mistake. Big mistake. Hard liquor on a plane is hard to deal with anyway. These men are already probably blackout drunk. One of my friends, shout out Ross, he actually got cut off on a plane because he's a major Colts fan and he was flying internationally when the Colts were playing that crazy game against the Ravens about two months ago on Monday Night Football and blew a 28-point second-half lead against oh. Lamar Jackson. Oh. He was literally cut off on a plane. I've never heard that ever <laughs> happening in my life. But this it's, like, guy, it's like it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Be cut off, <laughs> this is bit, this, they should do an episode about this rather than Boggs. Yeah. Because now we're, at, we're in a food fight Everybody and their wives and girlfriends are drunk as shit, and now hard liquor's coming out. And while a lot of people can handle, like, booze, alcohol, champagne and beer, you, you can handle champagne and beer. Once you start taking shots of whiskey, tequila, and vodka, it's very easy to get crazy. And apparently, basically everybody started puking, especially <laughs> the wives and the girlfriends. And most planes don't have that many bathrooms. A DC-10 might have two, yeah. three, 1980s, four would be shock. And these bathrooms are obviously being occupied by the crazy Mets doing things like taking drugs and having sex. So you couldn't really be puking in the bathroom. So a lot of these people resorted to puking in the, um, the little pouches that are behind seats. So things got really disgusting really quickly between the chocolate frosting all over the planes and the puke all over the floors in everybody's faces. And Doc Gooden apparently afterwards said his most vivid memory of this flight, talking about how the bathrooms are being used... And also, you kind of think that Doc Gooden maybe wasn't being as truthful with this story as he possibly could have been, was that one of the bathroom doors basically broke and it couldn't be closed anymore. And he just remembers the person in there doing lines of cocaine, not even recognizing the fact this door was open and continuing to doing these lines of cocaine. And I I just know in the bottom of my heart that had to be Lenny Dykstra. Yeah, if that's not Lenny Dykstra. I'd be shocked if that wasn't Lenny Dykstra. If it wasn't Doc Gooden, it was Lenny Dykstra. Yeah, oh, without a (laughs) doubt. I mean... The, these Mets teams are crazy. Like crazy. There's still more. There's still more. And now these guys are crazy. People are puking, doing cocaine, 
having sex, chocolate frosting all over. The Mets guys started getting tired. They wanted to lay down. Apparently, Daryl Strawberry was just yucking seats, just absolutely breaking them at the vertice and making them recline all the way. <laughs> Apparently, broke rows and rows of seats so these guys could lie down and relax before they landed at JFK. And then they get out of JFK to a group of fans who were there to congratulate the Mets and cheer them on to come in, get ready for the World Series. And multiple wives were literally carried off this plane. People were covered in puke. There was one firsthand account of an anonymous um, wife or girlfriend who was wearing this like super cool like Southern California like leather outfit. It was the 80s, of course. Yeah. Just head to toe covered in puke. <laughs> and the fans are like, holy shit, what's going on right now? People are being carried off. They can't even do it. The players who went on there wearing suits and ties came off wearing ties and T-shirts. The whole thing was crazy. The optics were horrific. And then on top of that... Frank Cashin knew he had messed up letting the wives go on because that made everything get a little crazier with the girls being involved. He saw the bad optics getting off the, getting off the plane and his players would look disheveled covered in puke. Imagine this was on Twitter. It would be... If, if the Mets... If the 1986 Mets had Twitter, would not survive. No. They would not be allowed to play. Not they'd even, just be banned from baseball. Not even for a second. And then the icing on the cake on top of all of this, United was so absolutely mortified and shocked by what had happened. They said they would never do business with this Mets team again. And they sent the $7,500 bill straight, straight to Frank Cashin and say, you are paying for this. We are not responsible for the damages you caused to our aircraft. That $7,500 in 1986 translates to $19,000 in today's money. $19,000 bill for destroying a plane, an aircraft, a DC-10, a monster. That's not Trump change. Only four players in that Mets team made $1 million that season before tax, and 13 of them made less than 100000 which is even crazier. Cashin just destroyed David Johnson after this. Same with the traveling secretary. And again, David was part of this debauchery. The traveling secretary was in horror on this plane. He said, this is on you. You guys have to foot the bill. And David Johnson took this as an opportunity to deliver one of his greatest lines of all time as one of the best player managers anyone in baseball has ever seen. Walked into the locker room, told the team what had happened. They were honestly shocked. Somehow the Mets didn't even realize what they had done yeah. because they were that insane. Also that drunk. Probably didn't remember. Yeah, that high. <laughs> doing Blowing lines in the bathroom of the aircraft with their wives. He said, what do you guys think about this? What do you guys think about this? It fell on quiet ears. No one had a response. Again, what do you guys think of it? No answers. He said, you know what I think? I think over these next four games, you'll probably put enough money in these guys' pockets to cover it. So fuck this bullshit. <laughs> and everyone went ballistic. And that yeah. ended up being the rallying cry for the Mets in the World Series that they almost blew. I, a, a series they started off very sluggishly because they had the party of a lifetime on a plane. Because they were still recovering. Yeah, literally. Three-day hangover probably for these guys in their early 30s. And the best quote to come out of it was from a pitcher, Randy Neiman, who was a pretty small part of this team. He was one of those guys making less than $100,000 on the season. He said, it wasn't just guys destroying a plane. It was guys destroying a plane after an emotional roller coaster. There's a difference. Oh, yeah. And there goddamn was. The Mets exercised some demons on that plane, and while they did start that series against the Red Sox off slowly, they made a massive comeback, winning game six and seven, and the rest is history. And the Mets also have a great history with Houston, too, because earlier in that season, it was what, Ron Darling, Bob Ojeda, and Rick Aguilera, who got into a brawl at a Houston Tough bar. Up. Tuffle as well, yeah. They got into a bar, arrested, all this kind of stuff, all just picking fights with anybody because they were playing a series in Houston during the time. So this is, while there's games going on, the city of Houston and the Mets, it's bad juju. They don't mix well. And there's some rivalry there because the, these were two of the best teams in baseball. They both went over, I think, 105 games in this season. Like That's yeah. pretty shocking for two teams in the same league to do that. Yeah, no, they literally just, I mean, this was a party team, and I watched a little bit of Once Upon a Time in Queens already. And they, they show a little bit of this stuff and they talk about it. Not as in-depth as we just did because I don't think ESPN could air it. 
But they talked a lot about what happened and that just this Mets team was living on cloud nine. They felt untouchable. They felt they could do no wrong and they were treated like kings. And when you are, I would, I would mess up a plane too, I'm sure, if I won a big series like that. And these guys were also used to partying in New York. Like Keith, Daryl, these guys, Ronnie, they went out on a nightly basis to the best clubs in America at the time, probably even in the world, and went crazy. And they played game seven the next day. Seven? You can sleep that off. That's easy. You literally, like, in, in Once Upon a Time in Queens, they show you these guys out, and they're getting taken pictures of as if they're Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Like, the it, news on them being out people you wanted to go where the Mets were going to be because that's where the party was that's the biggest party in the city yep and uh it worked out now (laughs) as the years went on these players things went bad things went bad as they do for people who are you know using copious amounts of cocaine and stuff (laughs) but at the time it worked and the Mets they had fun and they won and they could when you win you can do whatever you want and the fact that they at least won one is meaningful because this team probably the core that they had should have won a collection of championships at least a collection of pennants the only time they ever even got close again was 1988 and they blew that series against the Dodgers 85, 86, 87, 88 goes down as the era that could have been for the Mets and while they did get one and that's good it seems like probably some of the things they were doing outside of baseball hurt their ability to get more. Yeah, and of course, we now know that was the glory days. Yeah. We've got a lot of ugly stuff before and after. And I think we're going to talk about a little bit some guys that the Mets have missed out on mm-hmm. and the reasoning why. Because we know about all the guys that have come to the Mets and have underperformed. But there are also guys who the Mets didn't even take on their team or got rid of. And they just got infinitely better. And I know you're going to start off with a pretty big one here and uh, a guy they didn't go after. Well, I think first maybe we should go through the list, and we'll, then I'll hit that one at the end. Okay, because one guy on that 1986 Mets team they gave up on too soon was Kevin Mitchell. Yeah. And the Mets gave up on Kevin Mitchell, who went on to have a pretty good career with a couple different National League teams. Won an MVP with the Giants, had some incredible seasons out in San Francisco. The Mets, for some reason, got the idea in their head that he himself was the bad influence on Daryl Strawberry and Doc Gooden, simply by generalizing him based on race and where he grew up. Well, I was about to say, this was a real problem in 86 because George Foster was a part of the 86 team and the Mets cut him out of nowhere after he was their big signing that they gave all this money to. And he played the card that he felt like it was because of race and that was racially motivated. And the guy who took over his spot was Kevin Mitchell. And it was almost like the Mets tried to do the, we'll replace like one African-American guy with another. And then he, they got rid of him pretty quickly soon after. And Kevin Mitchell has always said that he was like a straight laced guy. Like he grew up in like in a rough area and he knew, I think it was Southern California, I believe like similar to Daryl. He was a brawler. Yeah. But he was still never like did any extracurriculars. Like he was not much of a drinker. Never, apparently never did any drugs. And that's why that quote from Wally Backman was meaningful because he said, everybody was partying on that plane. There were a lot of guys who probably always shot away. A guy like Gary Carter, a guy like guys like Kevin Mitchell. This wasn't everyone partying. That's why things got crazy. But the Mets gave up on a guy after one year, a great year, because they, for some reason, had an idea in their heads that he was disrupting two people on their team who could not have been bigger disruptions. <laughs> yeah, no. In uh, Good and Daryl Strawberry. No. And another guy they faced in that series touched on Nolan Ryan. The Mets gave up on him incredibly too soon because he couldn't throw strikes in an era where strike throwing was by far the most important thing that pitchers could ever do, even though he threw like 100 miles an hour when no one even cracked 93. And he went on to be one of the most successful pitchers, decorated pitchers in the history of the game. Yeah, he just immediately got better as soon as he left the Mets. And then got another guy who immediately got better as soon as he left the Mets, and this is more modern now, Justin Turner. I mean, I don't kick the Mets or myself over this one at all, and I think we talked about earlier, you don't either. A lot of Mets fans like to point and laugh at this one, like, I can't believe we gave up on Justin Turner. But to be fair, he was pretty horrible with the Mets. who saw this one coming? But it's just... 
you don't hear about these stories as much from other teams. No. Other teams don't give up guys who are barely major leaguers or are, are struggling as like young pitchers and they become the best players in baseball. I guess sometimes it happens the, a little more so I think the Mariners, pitchers. which uh, arguably are Mets West, you could think of like Michael Morse, Chris Taylor, Adam Jones. Michael <laughs> Morse. I mean, Michael come Morse on. had some good years. He had a couple good years, but not, not like the echelon of guys we're talking about. I mean, the Pirates are a team that you could probably say modern day something similar happens to with just the fact of Cole and Musgrove. Yeah. You know? And mm. Tyon almost did. We'll Meadows, see. Glasnow. Meadows and Glasnow. That's a big one too. But that's more minor. That's more just being stupid from a trading standpoint. The Mets have traded probably tons of minor leagues. Yeah, yeah. We're not even talking about that. We're talking about guys who actually had major league reps with the Mets that left and went on to do incredible things. Varying degrees of great things. We're looking at an MVP here. One of the most decorated pitchers of all time, most no hitters of all time, multiple Cy Young awards, Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer, and one of the greatest postseason hitters in the history of the sport, and been a top ten third baseman since he's left the Mets. And this took eight seconds to think of. Yeah, we didn't even go through the annals of history for those three names. Just didn't want to do it to ourselves. No, no, no. We already did that with the Mets. But then I do have another story I want to share about a guy who the Mets had a chance to get who didn't, who wound up being an all time great, and that was Reggie Jackson. The Mets were. Far and away the worst team in baseball for the first three, four, five years of their existence from 1962 onward, basically until they got good suddenly in the late 60s. And they had the number one pick in 1966, and that was when Reggie Jackson was leaving Arizona State looking to become a Major League Baseball player. But he was the number one prospect along with a Southern California left-handed hitting catcher named Steve Chilcott. I don't think anybody's out there ever heard of Steve Chilcott. Unless you Mets fans actually lived during the 60s. And yeah. You go, I can't believe we took Steve Chilcott. You're a Mets fan. Your uncle talks about Steve Chilcott, which mine does on occasion. I think he's going to listen to this. Uncle Lou, you told me about Steve Chilcott for the first time years and years ago. But the Mets did wind up taking Chilcott first overall because they said catching was their greatest need. Casey Stengel, who had um, transitioned from being a head coach to one of the Mets' top scouts, after that he just realized he didn't want to coach a team of pure amateurs, being one of the most successful baseball coaches of all time, said afterwards that there would have been a lot of pass balls if the Mets did not draft a catcher. <laughs> and that ended up being irrelevant because Steve Chilcott never even played a single game at the Major League level, not just with the Mets, but with anybody. That his first season in pro ball after being drafted, he hit under 200. And then while the next year he started being okay, he separated his shoulder in midway through the season and was literally never the same again. He never hit a lick. He had to transition off of catcher, play first base. The whole thing ended up being a complete disaster. While Reggie Jackson wound up being a Hall of Fame player, led the A's to a three-peat in the mid-70s. The Mets might have played against him in the yeah, 73 did, World yeah. Series, and then he ended up going to the Yankees and winning two more. Mr. October, as other people would like to call him. One of the best home run hitters of all time. Yeah. And then theoretically, if you would think about a team as bad as the Mets, you would want to take a little bit less of a risk on a number one overall pick. Maybe take the college bat, who basically can't fail, rather than shoot for the moon with a high school catcher. Catching in the 1960s at the high school level? Johnny Bench was drafted in the 1960s at a high school. But he's, Oklahoma or yeah, Nebraska. And you are picking like the greatest catcher of all time. Yeah, 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 so. yeah. <laughs> and I think, but that also, I think, was a second. He was not the first round pick, Johnny Bench, if I remember that correctly. And the A's general manager afterwards said that Reggie Jackson would have been 100% their choice with number one. That it would have been close, but he basically said without saying, you read between the lines, like, this was our guy through and through. And he was basically a little bit surprised that the Mets, a team that was really needed to grasp onto something, really needing a star. This was before Tom Seaworth was on the team. He was actually drafted, I believe, for the first time in 1966, or maybe it was 65, around this era. They really needed a star. They needed someone for fans to catch on to, a team that was probably looking like they could have been like stuck in mediocrity for a while. But thank God they got off the hump at 69. And then Jackson dropped a bombshell in his book that came out about 10 years ago that the Mets didn't take him for racially motivated reasons. And 
there is kind of credence to say that because the mid-60s, baseball was still a very conservative, straight-laced sport. Yeah. While the, the color barrier had been broken for every team by that time, it hadn't been broken that recently by teams like the Yankees and the Red Sox within the decade, and there still wasn't like that many African-American players around baseball. And more specifically, apparently the Mets did not want to take a shot on Jackson was because he had made the habit of dating outside of his race. And I believe this is also one of the reasons why Cleon Jones and the Mets had issues, too, was that Cleon Jones was apparently dating out of his race, and that was a possible oh. issue. He was also being adulterous. Okay, that too, yeah. Yes, and it, but the Mets also made Cleon Jones like sit there for a press conference with his wife after he was caught like in a car and got arrested for indecent exposure in an offseason or something yeah. like that. But I don't think the race of that woman was ever known. But I think okay. maybe it's been assumed that Rumor. that was what happened. They literally made him sit there for an interview publicly, and then he actually ended up having a couple outbursts that year. It's one of the most beloved Mets in the history of the franchise at that point. Him and Yogi Berra got into it, who was a manager in the early 70s. And Yogi Berra ended up telling management that was either him or Cleon Jones. And the Mets cut loose Cleon Jones after that. So there was some weird race things happening with the Mets. And also, Reggie Jackson had dated white women in the past publicly. At this time, he was dating a Mexican, living in Arizona, going to Arizona State. And he was always very perplexed by this because he himself was half Puerto Rican. Yeah. So he was like, I don't know why you think I'm dating outside of my race. Like, I have two races. And the Mets were like, no, no, no. We've seen you. You're black. You're dating outside of your race because that's what it looks like. No nuance involved in that discussion at all. And this is a lot of hearsay because this is something that Reggie Jackson said. One of his coaches at Arizona State told him it's been denied by everybody else who has ever been brought up to. <laughs> but also, like... Casey Stangle, who's the Mets head scout, never once once went to go scout Reggie Jackson in person. Which is crazy. Which is crazy. He's by far the best college player in the country. And that is corroborated, and that's proof. If anyone wants to also read more about this, there's a great article in the Hardball Times about it, which is Fangrass's like, editorial sister. So everyone look it up. But a big point here is that the Mets general manager at the time, George Weiss, had a checkered racial past. He was a longtime Yankees general manager through the 50s, a time when the Yankees were um, reluctant still to break the color barrier decades a decade more than a decade after the Dodgers had with Jackie Robinson there were tons of black players around baseball very successful like Robinson Larry Doby name a few he had always mentioned that he wanted the right player to break the Yankees color barrier because they were such a storied franchise which, which sounds so wrong that is such a disgusting sentence to even say and the Yankees were also the third last team to break the color barrier which almost seems like that's shocking enough itself they weren't the last or second to last yeah. with the Red Sox but all Weiss really ever meant was that he wanted someone reserved to break the color barrier, not someone who was like a good enough player, because the Yankees had a player named Vic Power in their minor league system through the 50s, and this guy was a legitimate stud. He wasn't even black. He was native Puerto Rican, but again, he appeared black. So uh, the American populace and the, the straight-laced conservatives saw him as black. In the mid-50s, he spent back-to-back -back seasons in AAA as a 24- and 25-year-old, hitting 330 and then 350 with power. And George Weiss always said that he was kept down for defense. But Vic yeah. Power was actually an incredible defender. And while he did never make his debut with the Yankees, they traded him before in the offseason after he hit 350 for pennies on the dollar. He won seven gold gloves his major league career and six in a row. And then if you look into it a little bit deeper, Power being a native to Puerto Rico where segregation wasn't really as normal of a thing, he openly went to clubs with his white teammates. He openly stayed in white-only hotels. He openly dated a white woman. And he was openly defied segregation very publicly. And this was not something the Yankees were going to tolerate at the time. So again... The same GM who did not draft Reggie Jackson, George Weiss, traded power for pennies. He ended up having a pretty okay career. And bottom line, it just seems like this old line conservative guy saw a couple of reasons not to draft Reggie Jackson for reasons that were nothing to do with playing baseball. Yeah. And that is just, 
such a disappointing thing for the Mets franchise history. Yeah, like we would hope now that the you know the thing that people the hill that people die on is like you know hey they beat their wife they shouldn't be on the team. Then it was like well he dated a white woman. He dated a white woman. I don't know about that. Dated like, outside of his race. It's crazy that that was the one that they couldn't look past. Definitely, and also just because at this time baseball was just so much more conservative because baseball was always like an old money sport back in like the 20s 30s 40s these were a lot of guys who still had these jobs in the 60s and baseball itself in america was more so played in small southern towns because that's where the weather permitted so even a team like the new york mets who you would think would be like they first of all they became a team in the 60s they were in a place like new york who's relatively more liberal than other places in the country you would think that they would have been a little bit more on top of issues like this but really they were just as diluted as everybody else in the sport yep and uh, cost them getting one of the best players uh, in this game. It, it probably cost the Mets a shot of the dynasty between the late 60s and early 70s. Yep. And uh, the rest is history. Now let's talk about someone that they missed out on. Again, not, not for racial reasons by any means now. We're, we're done with that conversation here. But we'll talk about uh, a player that the Mets missed on from sheer, I guess, ignorance, from sheer stupidity. And that's Alex Rodriguez. Now say what you want about A-Rod. I think, at least to me, he is one of the 10 greatest players to ever step on a baseball field. I would, I would even say five. Yeah, he just was able to do stuff pre-steroids, with steroids, whatever you want to say. When he was in Seattle, he was unbelievable, kind of like Bonds in Pittsburgh. They were doing stuff before the steroids that players were not able to accomplish before. We'll say, though, that there's been some report that A-Rod was taking steroids even through his youth. Oh, okay. All right. Well, regardless. Yeah, even if you took steroids, it doesn't make you a better baseball player. Yeah, still got to do the job, and he was. And he was considered to be the best player, one of the best players in baseball at the time, especially at the shortstop position. 2001, free agent. He was looking to go somewhere. A-Rod grew up in Miami, and oh, what do you know? He grew up a huge friggin' Mets fan, and all A-Rod wanted to do was be like Keith Hernandez and play for the New York Mets and put on the orange and blue. He said in the 2001 offseason he wanted to be a Met, and this is all coming now later on. We find this out later when he's doing his Sunday Night Baseball broadcasts, but he said he would have made huge sacrifices to play for the Mets. This is one of the guys who's considered to probably be one of the most greedy players in Major League Baseball history outside of Barry Bonds. And he would have made sacrifices to play for the Mets in 2001. Imagine him going next to Piazza in that lineup. I mean, my God. I couldn't even believe it. We had Ray Ordonez playing shortstop. (laughs) A-Rod? A-Rod? But basically it came down to this. Is that A-Rod wanted to be a Met, but the Mets never really came to him. That's the brass tacks of it all. Is that Steve Phillips and the Mets felt that there were bigger issues outside of this New York Mets team than signing a guy like A-Rod. Steve Phillips himself, who, you know, as a GM... Bad GM and also a shitbag. Yeah, not a great dude. Said it would be hard to win with all that money dedicated to A-Rod, which to me sounds just absolutely insane because the Mariners were winning quite a few games with A-Rod. I know that Ken Griffey too. But we had Piazza. We had a good team. So it's not like the Mets were horrible surrounded by my, uh, A-Rod if they got him. Can I say something really funny? Yeah. You brought up the comparison between who the Mets shortstop was and who the Mets shortstop could have been between Ray Ardonias and A-Rod. In 2000, A-Rod hit 40 homers, 130 RBIs, 315, 420, 606 slash, and a 163 OPS plus. Take a guess at what Ray Ordonez's OPS plus was in 2000. Any guess. A number. 45. You are remarkably close, yet you oversold. 32. Oh, my God. He, A-Rod's <laughs> he, honestly... He missed a lot of the year with injury, Ordonez. He only played 45 games, so counting stats probably hurt his OPS plus. But he was a guy who sat in the... For these 50s and 60s for the bulk of his career. I was going to say, I bet you A-Rod's one year there was better than Ray Ardonia's entire career offensively. Oh, probably as many RBIs. Yeah. Uh, when two, Ray Ardonia's had 287 RBIs in nine years. Oh, wow. So that was basically two years for A-Rod. If you combine A-Rod's 
99 and if 2000. You can, if you combine 2001, 2002, you're right up to it. You're, you're at 277. It's unbelievable. So, yeah, he didn't work out. There was also rumors that Boris, who was his agent, and this was when Boris was really starting to get, you know, his chops a little bit. He was really starting to push the butt or push the, you know, envelope a little bit. He said that if A-Rod were to have signed with the Mets, there was a lot of perks that were going to be included, which was a Shea Stadium office. I don't know if that's for A-Rod or if it's for Scott Boris, but someone was getting an office. He wants a marketing staff, which actually way ahead of his times. That's like stuff that all players should be trying to get now. Merchandise tent at spring training, a luxury box, just an entire luxury box for them, a private jet as well, (laughs) and several billboards, which I think is so funny because of how advertising was done back in the day. But basically... A-Rod would have come to the Mets if they just even gave him the slightest chance. And the Mets didn't even look at him. They said, too much money. How can we compete with Alex Rodriguez on our team? What would we ever do? And these are all things that, again, like you mentioned, most teams do this now organically. Just not the private jet, whatever. But you sign the best player in baseball, there better be a lot of billboards. Well, you have the best player in baseball, you should be focusing all of your marketing campaigns on this player. Something the Angels have lacked for a very long time with the two best players in baseball. This was just a guy who was ahead of his time, and these are probably things that in the long run would have made the Wilpons more money than they ever could have imagined, especially the way their finances were going at the time with other uh, bad actors, but we'll talk about that in a yeah. few minutes. I mean, the Wilpons just, quite simply, are some of the dumbest people, and you know, maybe Fred's a little smarter, because he did make all the money, let's yeah. be honest. He did, Fred, he did something. He, was Fred, a, he commuted. Fred accomplished. Yeah. Jeff was born into the family, nepotism at its finest. And that dude literally couldn't have made money if it was right in front of his face. He wouldn't know what money looked like. He has no clue. He's a moron. Which now leads us into uh, a little bit more money talk here <laughs> with the Will Bonds. Because I mean, we can't talk about the Mets without being getting caught up in what is the biggest American Ponzi scheme ever. Yeah, $65 billion in losses, I think, total or total money made or whatever. That was a number that was planted on top of that. And just the Mets for years were kind of like, I don't even know what the word is here. Just... Fugazi in cahoots, yeah, with Bernie Madoff, apparently, based on the fact that they were uh, ordained by a court to have to pay a settlement to the people who lost money. The Mets ended up when when the when the Ponzi scheme ended up coming down. The Mets were on the hook for, I believe, one hundred sixty million dollars that they ended up through legal proceedings got whittled down to around forty five by the when it was all said done. I think possibly even twenty three after a, like a long, long legal proceeding, but. These Mets owners, who we've always chastised as being dirtbags all time, were actually dirtbags like, on a molecular level, stealing money from American people for decades at the time. Yeah. I mean, like, they've never been proven to have been directly no. involved, but it seemed like, at least on the outside looking in, that the Wilpons knew that there was a way to make money easily, and that the way to do that was with Bernie Madoff, and it might be for reasons you don't like, but we're not going to ask questions. No. We're not going to ask how you're doing it. We're just going to accept that oh, there's more and more money coming into our accounts every single day. This looks pretty good. And there's even a quote from a New York Times article, literally from 2011, right when the Bernie Madoff thing went absolutely haywire and everyone realized what was happening. Bernie was part of the business plan for the Mets. That's from an anonymous former club employee. Fred and Bernie were good friends. They're part of the same country club. Their kids were friends. They, There's a lot of pictures of Bernie in the 90s being on the field at Shea Stadium, taking pictures with players and executives and whatnot. These two were very much intermingled the entire time. I feel like a lot of what pop culture used as the Mets fall out from Bernie Mayoff is that they were victims. It's more likely than not that the Mets there's, benefited. Yeah, there's there's more than reasonable... You can't really find reasonable doubt that the Mets were not at all aware of anything that was happening. If they weren't aware, they're even stupider than we ever could have realized. Yeah, they're, they are truly actual morons. This is like a Paterno-Sandusky thing. 
very, very similar. But yeah, uh, they got caught up in that, lost a lot of money, lost a lot of money. It's because they got caught. And probably a big reason when we flipped this around, why the Mets ended up having to sell was because they were on the hook for such a large settlement, paying millions and millions of dollars a year that they probably didn't work into their very, very tight budget. No. That's probably a big reason Steve Cohen even owns this team now. And it's a huge reason why I think Fred Wilpon, the reason why they ended up making that decision to sell again to Cohen, because if you guys remember, Cohen bought the team. He had it, and then the Wilpons like, went back on it and said, hey, you know what, actually, we're not going to do that. But then I think Fred saw how Jeff ran this team and ran the organization. He goes, oh, my God, all, my family's fortune is going to be running to the ground because you are an actual imbecile. You're an idiot. You're a moron. And he was like, we got, we got to sell this. And he lost a billion dollars on the sale, which is music to my ears. I just love to hear that a billionaire has less money, even <laughs> though he still got a billion dollars. I mean, he still got two. <laughs> yeah, still, he still got a couple, but he did lose out on some money, which is always, always a win in my books. Definitely. And we're even just, we've got 40 minutes now talking about random tidbits of Mets history. We have so many more that we can run through. We told you three or four large anecdotes here, but just talking about the fact that the Mets have had two players disappear only in the last seven years. And again, I think disappears in quotations too, yeah. because we ended up finding out they knew very well what was going on about yeah, Cespedes. Uh, mere hours later, same yeah. with Harvey. We yeah. showed up very soon they were They were hit pieces. Yes. They were hit pieces that they got to the news before you could actually find out the proper information and make those guys look terrible. Matt Harvey was just dealing literally with sad boy hours. Andrea, dealing with, Andrea, dealing with a breakup. What was it Andrea, Andreana Lima or whatever yeah. his girlfriend at the time was just like, we're done. Yeah, I think she ended up having sex with Wes Welker. Yeah. That was it? Or Edelman, one of them? She, she's... Smoke. She's a model. On the mean, she's on got Earth. her pick of the litter from yeah. whatever she wants, and uh, she didn't pick Matt Harvey that day. Yeah, which and then that made them very sad, which I would understand being sad, but I would not understand not telling your team that you're just not going to show up to a game. Yeah, and then Cespedes, of course, went home for COVID, and the Mets basically were like, I, he's, we don't know where he is, so we can't find him. Like, they knew where he was. He, he left. I remember watching it that day being like, I'm kind of worried about Joanna Cespedes. Yeah, like with the Cuban connection. Like, yes. we know with the, you know, Yasiel Puig stuff, like, there's dudes that are out there looking for these guys. Possibly, yeah. And I, even just Cespedes' story with the Mets in general, the fact that they got him in a trade after another trade was reversed. Yeah. They had a trade for a different outfielder that ended up not happening. They ended up getting Cespedes with, like, three minutes to go to the deadline. Traded at the time a pretty significant prospect in Michael Fulmer to get him for what was just a rental. He goes on to have a second half that literally got him MVP votes in the National League, playing yeah. only half the year in the league. Propel- he, didn't, he played like 50 games. Propelled them to a World Series, signed the massive contract, and then just went completely down the tubes. Yeah, like he had, he even had a good, I think, year after that, still battling some injuries and stuff. And that was always the big thing with him was mm-hmm. the injuries. But the wild boar incident. Yeah, I fell off a horse, and then you end up finding out that he was chasing after a wild boar, stepped in a hole, stepped in a hole. Which I believe, I think that's actually true. I think the boar might have actually got the ankle. That's yeah, also possible. You we never those, saw pictures of the ankles. The, those boars are low to the ground; they have yeah. really good leverage. I, and like when he did play, he made an impact. He just didn't do it a lot, and it yeah. was like classic Mets. We thought that we got this savior, and he wanted to be a Met again. It was like, oh my god, this guy's staying here after what he could have gotten huge money. And then it just never really panned out. Like, that was that stunk. And then we want to talk about other things that stunk not panning out. David Wright. I mean, we get gifted a guy who is a possible Hall of Fame third baseman. He was on the track to be one of the best third basemen of all time. Offensively, defensively, he did it all. He was a clean guy. He was our Derek Jeter. He loved the Mets. He was our Derek Jeter. And he was great. And then City Field comes along, and it kind of messes with his head a little bit offensively. And then he gets spinal stenosis. He gets concussions. He ends his career early. No one saw this coming. And, like, you couldn't even see what, honestly, is one of the greatest Mets of all time really live up to his full potential. Can we talk about the four years that David Wright has first four full seasons of the Major League between Disgusting. 2005 Disgusting. and 2008? Hall of Famer. 
Over those four seasons, David Wright, 630 games, hit 116 homers, and was worth 25 wins above replacement in four years. That's a disgusting number. He had back-to-back seasons, 2007, 2008, where he was worth 8.4 war and 7.0 war. No, you never see an 8 in the war number. And David Wright did it. Yeah, David Wright was As unbelievable. a 24-year-old. So sick. Oh, he was so God. sick, and we just didn't get to And lose. he got the MVP stolen from him for, by Jimmy Rollins oh, yeah. because the Mets fucking blew the division title with 17 games to go. Oh, my God. Jimmy Rollins, by the way, getting Hall of Fame votes is asinine. I think he got, like, one Hall of no, Fame. No, he's got, like, six. That whoever votes for Jimmy Rollins for the Hall of Fame, you should lose your credentials. He, he shouldn't have even been in the top five for MVP voting that year. Jimmy Rollins is not even a top, maybe it's top five shortstop, because shortstop's the bad position. But that he wasn't even never a top five player in baseball. No. He was very good. He had some good years. He went 30-30. He played good defense. Yeah. He hit on top of good order that one did win a fucking World Series. God. But Jimmy you're not, you could, you can tell the story of baseball without even mentioning Jimmy Rollins. You don't <laughs> yeah. even have to hear about Jimmy Rollins. Like, I hate Jimmy Rollins. And then, I guess, let's just keep going, Juan, to keep harping on the 2000s Mets before we talk about the 90s guys. We're just going to keep going down our list. Whatever you want to do. Let's go down our list. Let's talk about the 90s Mets, because the 93 season was something of... Chaos. Ca- absolute chaos. Vince Coleman uh, lit a firecracker, threw it into the crowd, injuring three people. He <laughs> threw a firecracker into the stands at Shea Stadium. What? Are, what? Vince Coleman was also one of the better players in baseball. Came to the Mets, he was just bad. Yeah, off, oh, he was Terrible. so bad. He Stopped was stealing so bases. Bad. And then Brett Saberhagen, who was one of the best pitchers in baseball. Literally one of the best pitchers in baseball. Came to the Mets, wasn't great. We're still paying him to this day. Yeah, I kind of want to talk about that because Bobby Bonilla gets all the credit for June 1st, but no one realized that Brett Saberhagen's on basically the exact same deal. A couple hundred thousand dollars less per season for, again, the next 10 years. Thank yeah. God. I don't want that to make it to Twitter. So everyone just everyone just seal it, lock it, throw it away. Brett Saberhagen, same thing as Bobby Bonilla. We're all Mets fans listening here. We're behind the same thing. But yeah, Brett Saberhagen filled a water gun with bleach and shot it at reporters, which... That's unbelievable. My dad told me this, and I didn't believe it. I had to go look it up myself. It's crazy. How about another Mets pitcher? Let's talk about another guy. K-Rod beat the living shit out of his dad in the Mets, or not his dad, father-in-law, in the Mets clubhouse, was arrested, and apparently when reporters asked him about it, he was ready to start taking names and fighting them as well. Like, what? How do you... Why is your father-in-law in the clubhouse, and how do you end up brawling with him? That's like Ted Lasso. I don't know if you guys have seen it. But uh, Jamie Tart punches his dad in the face. But his dad was a real piece of shit. And that Spoilers. Was like, that was like fake. I don't even know how that happens. Yeah, what's, what's K-Rod's father-in-law doing in the clubhouse anyway? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we got some more. You want to take some? Yeah, we got Jason Vargas and Mickey Calloway trying to fight Tim Healy after Javi Baez had a walk-off home run off them. Understandably. Chicago. Yeah, Tim Healy is a bit of a, a shitbag, but... Trying to fight a reporter? That's a line that's never been crossed before. Not in sports, at least. Yeah, and then it started up the the uh, Jason Vargas going from like being like the dorky like science teacher to like thinking he's like the big tough, tough guy. guy now. I mean, I like Jason Vargas after that point. Ooh, guy's got a little edge here. Yeah, yeah but, I kind of like that. But uh, yeah, my God, Mickey Callaway. That entire era is just a... We hired a G... Uh, our GM was an agent. Yes. That's our GM story. was an agent. He hired a serial sexual offender. Yeah, unbelievable. The, the worst, worst kept, kept secret in baseball. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. How about, how about another secret that had to be talked about in baseball? Even though there was nothing to talk about there, Mike Piazza, who had rumors of being homosexual for years swirling around him. And there's still never been an openly homosexual player in Major League Baseball. No. Had a press conference in a random game in May to announce he isn't gay. <laughs> He had a press conference to say, guys, I am in fact not gay. I, I have sex with women. Could, it's crazy. How could this? How could something like that even happen? There's no other organization where that would happen. No. Ever. The, who allowed that to happen? <laughs> who said, yeah, yeah, we should go through with this. We should have a press conference with Mike Piazza to prove he's not gay. This like, was before the Notes app. Yeah. So just be fair. 
Unbelievable. Unbelievable. We talked about the Ponzi scheme. Also, the fact that in back-to-back seasons, the Mets have had a general manager and a manager who never made it to the season with those roles. Nope. Jared Porter, gone. And Carlos Beltran, gone. It's unbelievable. Who could do that not once, but twice? And then just to you know, kind of wrap up all these crazy stories here, the most recent one, we got the fans boo the players. Thumbs yeah. down. <laughs> the fans boo the players, and the players boo the fans back. Yeah, That's famous Jerry Seinfeld being, being heckled as a comedian. What if I went to your job and heckled you? Yeah, like, and he went to a woman's office and said boo. <laughs> like, it's just... There's there's too many ups and downs with the Mets team. There's, there's just, too many. There's so much chaos that has always happened with this Mets team. And while we are ushering in this new era of fun Mets, I do think we're still going to have our fair share of chaos just because of the microscope that this team has always and will always be put under. And it's New York. It's the biggest it's, it's what the happens. biggest market in all of sports. They're going to get more press than the freaking Kansas City Royals, even when the Kansas City Royals win a World Series. Especially now because we have the richest owner in all of baseball, the second richest man to ever buy a sports team. And arguably one of the most uh, loud owners yep. in all of sports as well. Easily. One of the most vocal. Outside of Mark Cuban, probably. He's probably up there with you know and most Bal- vocal. And, and Balmer, the richest guy to own a team. Yeah. But uh, you know, there's also been good stuff with the Mets. We've had two miracles Legend for in the World yeah. Series. And pretty much any time we make the playoffs, there's some sort of magic that happens. Literally chaos. 19, and people always talk about 86 to 69. Everyone knows the ball went through Buckner's legs. Everyone knew you could put a man on the moon before the Mets would win a World Series. But 1973, this team was on last in last place on August 30th. And that was when one team made the playoffs <laughs> in the entire league. It wasn't like you could, you could sneak into the wild card spot three games over 500 like the goddamn Cardinals. No, you had to win the pennant in the season. And the Mets just went roughshod all through September. And they actually, weirdly enough, my uncle has all the information. Uncle Lou, shout out Uncle Lou again, big time, old time episode. They had to beat the Pirate, the first place Pirates, for four games in September to even get into a tie for first place. The Mets' history, story, being a Mets fan, you, you sign up for this ride. You know what you're getting involved in. And as much as uh, you know, sorrow it has brought me, when it does pay off, it is one of the best payoffs, it seems like, in all of sports. Oh yeah, absolutely. We're going to the moon. We are going to the moon, and this Mets team hopefully can be the team that maybe is the next miracle thing to happen here, although they, they should be good. Not much of a miracle. Not much yeah, of a miracle. Kind of good, yeah. It's a miracle for us. We haven't seen anything. Trust will be a miracle. Yes. Uh, the day the Mets win a World Series, whew, that's going to be... That's going to be a fun podcast, the next one. <laughs> oh, man, we could do, like, straight after the parade. Just absolutely <laughs> obliterated. <laughs> but anyways, guys, we don't have anything else to talk about We here. didn't even have anything to talk about at the beginning. We were no. just telling stories. Telling stories for 50 minutes. I hope you enjoyed it. Episode 69, nice, of the Mets Up podcast. Thank you guys for listening and watching. Uh, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Mets Up. You'll be able to find us anywhere. Follow James on Twitter, at Jeter Had No Range. Me at Mark with a C. Drop us a rating, a review, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. It really does help us grow the podcast. Share it with your friends. Uh, hopefully, we've got some big news coming for you guys in the next few weeks or so that uh, I think you'll be excited to hear if that mm-hmm. all works out. And now me and James are going to go run to a New York Knicks game because... And everybody watch Once Upon a Time in Queens for next week. Yes, Once Upon a Time next week. It's going to be our review, our another probably 50-minute episode talking about what happened. If you enjoyed it, thank you guys. Let us know on Twitter if you like this different kind of episode from us. I think it would be good feedback. Otherwise, that's where we're going to wrap it up. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We'll see you on the next episode of the Mets Up Podcast. Peace out. Peace out, guys. Thanks for listening.